Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark 15, starting at verse 21. And today we're going to talk about the cross, the crucifixion. Oh, the cross. So many songs were sung about the cross. We have jewelry that resembles the cross and decorations. And I'm not against those things at all. I mean, I have some of them in my home. We have them in the church. But my concern is that the cross has been sanitized over the years. It's been lessened. It's been attenuated. What did the cross look like? What was the crucifixion like? You know, what happened? Now, I'm not much of an artist, but I did take the cross that we actually had in the back, and I did a few things to it, and I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to kind of go through what's on it, and basically my understanding... We'll do this from the top. I didn't practice this, by the way. So he can understand a little bit more about the cross and what happened at the cross. Now... This is, again, my feeble attempt to, to show you what might have happened and what things might have looked like. If you're sitting in the front row, I can't make any guarantees I'm not going to drop this on you. <laughs> so, the cross. Well, back in the day, uh, it wouldn't have been straight. This is nice. It looked like uh, it was milled and real pretty 4 by 4s on here or something to that effect, but the real cross would have been made from tree boughs and trunks, cross piece and then a, a vertical piece, and the cross would have been reused for different prisoners. The Romans didn't care about sanitary conditions, so you would have had dried blood from the former prisoner, you would have had pieces of hair stuck in the, in the um, knotty and um, uneven and unsanded down pieces of the tree. You would have had uh, birds of prey, and it would have been a lot bigger than this. Birds of prey certainly dropping their bird droppings on the top as they stood up there and they waited for their victims to die so they could start pecking at their flesh and eating them. The bottom of the cross might have been littered with urine and feces as this was such a torturous way to die that it just didn't matter. Everything just becomes evacuated. Uh, as you can see, the spikes... They uh, imagine these things going through your, your hands, your wrists. Um, most likely the Romans would put it through the carpal bones of the, the hand and the wrist uh, to try to, with the tendons to try to hold their victim onto it. Or most likely they put it in between, they spiked these spikes through the uh, ulna and radius bones, which would have been extremely excruciating, probably severing or uh, impacting three of the nerves that run from the spine up through the shoulder down to the wrist. Uh, the cross would have heard the screams and the cries and the profanities of their victims if a cross could talk. I actually took time and something strange about a, a Bible teacher is you know you really want to get so into your message, you want to get so into explaining to everyone what's going on 
that you do strange things like I did, and I weave this crown of thorns from pyracantha bush, which my wife has on our property. I probably got more thorns in my fingers than I got on here. Uh, the thorns in the Middle East would have been, the indigenous thorns would have been a lot thicker. They would have been like spikes. They could have been up to an inch long. And when they platted that, and as you see, I, could use, I used twine, and the soldiers might have used that, something cheap that they could find to put the thorns together. And as you can see, it's not pretty. It's not like the decorations. When you really make this out of something natural, it's, it's hideous. The cross is grotesque. The cross is supposed to be grotesque, right? So this is what we have. And, you know, as we, as we look at this, we, it's kind of uncomfortable for us to check it out. Now, um, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the cross is foolishness to the Jew and a stumbling block to the Greek because the Jew knows that Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. He's accursed of God. So when you talk to a Jewish person, you have to explain to them exactly. Well, what do you mean my Messiah was hung on a tree to be cursed by God? So that you wouldn't have to. So there's some, some humps, some stumbling blocks. When you're witnessing to a Jewish person and you're talking to them, and you're trying to get through this impasse. So Paul says to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek, it's foolishness. The Greeks were into philosophy and science, and even though the Romans had conquered them, the Greeks were so prideful because the Romans kept a lot of Greek culture intact, including their Koine Greek language. So the Greeks were, can be arrogant out of their education and their philosophy and such. So what do you mean a dead man hanging on the tree? What does that do for me? So it's foolishness to the Greek. It's foolishness to the scientist today. It's foolishness to the physicist. You know? Physicist works within the natural laws. What does he want to hear about the cross of Christ? What can the cross do for the physicist? Even the watchtower in Brooklyn, who is the headquarters of the Jehovah Witnesses, if they come to your house on Saturday, they'll argue with you and tell you that Jesus was, was killed on a torture stake. Although artifacts and crosses in the Middle East and Roman literature and, and historical facts from historians tell us that they even had two words for the different pieces. The vertical piece was the stipes in the Latin, and the horizontal piece was the patibulum. So even the watchtower hates the cross. And, well, let's talk about modern Christianity. Let's talk about Western Christianity. Jesus said to embrace your cross. He said to take up your cross daily. And what does that mean? It means that we go through life as if our life is not going to be here forever. He said to crucify your flesh. He said to sacrifice for the sake of the Lord. Well, you won't hear that on most of the Christian TV channels. You certainly won't hear it from Joel Osteen because he'll tell you that God wants you to be rich. That God wants you to have that mansion on the cul-de-sac. That He wants every sniffle and illness to be healed if you have enough faith. But Jesus said something far different. And this is what we have to understand about the cross. Are we willing to embrace the fact that Jesus died for our sins? Do we want to crucify the old life in the flesh? Some of us this morning are having a hard time doing that, but I submit to you, the Bible says, draw close to Him and He'll draw close to you. 
And that is a fact. And that works for everyone. So today, I'm going to take four parts, talk about the crucifixion of Christ, and um, hopefully get a greater understanding and an appreciation of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Amen? Amen. Let's jump in. I'm going to read it all, and then I'm going to take it verse by verse. So Mark 15, just so you can take the, the overview here, Mark 15, verse 21 so now they, the Romans, compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So he was known to the church as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, meaning the cross of Christ. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked and said among themselves, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him, they also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were women also looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joses and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So you can see that the crucifixion from soup to nuts took several hours. I'm going to take all the Gospels together, and it's not an easy thing to do, but all four Gospels, so there's going to be times where you say, well, I didn't see that in the, in the passage, but it'll be from John or Luke, and I'll, I'll use that scripture to, to bring it all together and give you the aggregate picture here. But what makes the crucifixion more amazing is that the, the Roman guards would struggle with the prisoners. No doubt, who wants to be crucified? They knew when that spike went in that it was going to be brutal, probably worse than the whippings they received. And Romans would overpower their victims and force their arms across and their feet and stretch it out and start putting those spikes in. However, I believe, and I've seen movies done on this, I wasn't there, but I believe that Jesus was different. I believe that when they took Jesus' hand, he helped them because of you and me. He knew what was coming, but I believe that he helped them. You know, 
Mythbusters. How many people watch Myth, Mythbusters? It's kind of funny. They take, uh, <laughs> it, they take uh, people, things that people say about certain, I guess, things that happen in physics and chemistry, and they put it to the test. And they, it's kind of funny. They blow stuff up, and they record it. They do it a few times. And they had this thing, who could take more pain, men or women? And supposedly women can. So they did this scientific study with 20 or 30 mixed group, and uh, they did all these types of, you know, voluntary pain things to see how people would react. Um, sorry, guys, but the women won uh, overwhelmingly. <laughs> I don't want to start a revolt here. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but here was the thing. They could stop at any time. They could, one of the things was how long you keep your arm in a bucket of ice. And there was a lever, and you can pull your arm out and hit the lever, and it would stop the clock. And you can stop it when you just couldn't take it anymore. You know, Jesus had that lever too. This went on for hours. This was literally, talk about torture, this is torture. And this actually wasn't even created by the Romans, but they perfected it. This type of torture went on for several uh, centuries, and different cultures used it because they were able to keep the people in line with the fear of the cross. However, Jesus, because of his love for us, went through this for hours and hours and hours. And he could have stopped. He could have said legitimately, I'm God. I've never sinned. I mean, it's bad enough I'm taking their sins, but they're making fun of me and I'm going through pain. And this is humiliating. But he didn't do it. He kept going. For that person that came in here that's carrying baggage, think about that. He did it for you. If you were the only person, I believe he would have died for your sins just because he loves you. Now, verse 21 through 23, it says, Now, they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian. Now, Cyrenian, Cy Cyrene would have been North Africa, so the North African stretch. Okay, he would have been from that area. The father of Alexander and Rufus, again known to the church, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull, and they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. So the first part that I want to cover this morning is acts of mercy. A, Simon of Cyrene. Right? In Romans 16, 13, Rufus, one of his sons, is mentioned, known to the church. What happened to Simon he probably was an African man who converted to Judaism, followed the monotheistic God. Then he takes the Lord's cross, and we're explained to us that he became a believer. So Simon went through some transition in his life. What was it about Jesus that he, you know, that, that you know, what was the conversation like? And I like to kind of imagine and put myself in that situation. But Jesus' steps, even in his worst time, had such an effect on this man that he became a believer and his children were known to the church. Just one look is all it took, like that famous song decades ago. I'm dating myself. You know, brothers and sisters, and those that don't know the Lord yet, it doesn't take long to be introduced to Jesus Christ for you to have the same reaction that Simon had. Because he's God. And he was covered by human flesh but he was fully God. And his deity could not help but shine through his, his flesh. We saw that in the transfiguration, and we saw that in the way he dealt with people. B, the wine and the myrrh mixture. So this was something where 
you had people who were merciful would take these reeds on, at ground level and they would puncture a sponge. They would fill up a sponge and dip it with wine and myrrh. And this combination of, of, of materials or, or products would cause a, an anesthetic or an analgesic effect or a combination of both. And then they would hoist it up and the crucifixion victims would suck on it and it would help to deaden the pain. Now, I'm going to guess here that the Romans had no problem with this. Why? Because they had to stand there and watch these people languish. It probably wasn't an enjoyable detail for a Roman soldier, but it was something they had to do. So if you could get the person to relax and drop themselves down, then they would die of uh, suffocation. And then they would take them off the, the trees quickly. So probably the Romans had no problem with these acts of mercy. Now check this out. Jesus was not going to... Huh, it's not like kind of manly men today. I'm going to go through the pain. But Jesus wasn't going to have his senses, senses deadened as he died for our sins. Jesus was, went with this with eyes wide open. He wasn't going to take any shortcuts. He wasn't going to cut any corners. And that's what I read in this. And I got to tell you, the next time that we're tempted to fail him, we should think about this. Now, we're never going to have the same rate that Jesus had. He's, he's God. But that's still not an excuse to not consider what he did for us and try to stand strong and stand firm when he wants us to, whether it's a trial, whether it's a temptation. Our Lord cut no corners for us. But you know what? We cut a lot of corners for him, don't we? We do some dumb things, and we do some selfish things, and uh, it's something to consider. C, Golgotha, place of the skull. I actually saw a picture of it from the side, and it does look like a skull, maybe through mining or um, other things that they did at the side of that hill. There's, there was some deep impressions left, and when you look at it, it looks like a skull. Moving on, verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Again, going back to Isaiah 53. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked and said among themselves, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Real nice behavior for spiritual people, huh? Religious people. You know, some of the reason why even today unbelievers don't come to Christ is because of the behavior and the actions of those who call themselves Christians. So... God's people, again, whether it's back then or today, they still fail him by not setting a good example. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. Second point, or the second part, is acts of cruelty. So we had our acts of mercy, now we have our acts of cruelty. A, the soldiers were gambling for the Lord's possessions. You could almost see them doing it, some of them, Right? We can't lump them all into one group because the centurion actually does appear that he gets saved. Some of them are gambling for his clothing. Well, he's going to die. He doesn't need it. Uh, maybe not even waiting for the body to get cold. Acts of cruelty. B, insults not only from onlookers. To some, it was a sideshow. I guarantee if we had crucifixion in this country, outside, you'd get crowds. they want to see. It's this macabre desire to see something sick. All right? Humans without the Holy Spirit sometimes can behave like animals and worse than animals. 
Okay, so he's insulted not only from onlookers, religious leaders, soldiers, but even thieves. <laughs> even the two guys on either side of him that deserve what they're getting, they're even um, mocking him. There's a conjecture that Jesus was crucified between Barabbas's two cellmates in the insurrection. Remember, they brought out Barabbas, he was going to be crucified, and then they brought out Jesus, and Pilate was going to release one of them, and the crowd wanted Barabbas released. So it's quite possible that Barabbas should have been on that center cross. Jesus took his place. You know what? Jesus took my place on that cross too. Thankfully for me, even before I was born, he knew to do that. So in Luke 23, it does appear that one of the robbers actually turns to him. He has a change of heart, and he gets saved, and we'll, we'll cover that. But remember, we talked about freedom versus bondage. Barabbas was free. The Romans undid his shackles, and they let him go. You know, Barabbas takes off. However, Jesus now is back in bondage and they're putting him on the cross. However, Barabbas probably was free to kill another Roman soldier, thinking he was doing this for God. I think about ISIS, their twisted theology, their twisted idea of God. I'm doing this for God. However, Barabbas put himself back in chains by being free and not, and not receiving Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So, it's kind of one of those things in the scripture where it's kind of an enigma. We think of one thing, but it turns out to be the opposite, right? Jesus says, if you want to live, you have to die. If you want to live here and you live without God, then you'll die in your sins, right? If you want to be great, be humble and serve others. That doesn't make sense. God's economy a lot of times doesn't make sense to us, but it's, it's real. It's the real world. The, I, I submit to you that we live in a world of illusions, I have a gentleman I know who I'm working with, a young guy who's interested in the things of God and he's in the world and he sent me an inbox and he said, he goes, I'm so confused. He goes, this world is full of lies. I said, come out to Bible study, we'll talk. Right? Because this world is full of lies. He says, I don't know what to believe anymore. I can't even believe what I see. This is the world we live in. Here's another thing. The deeper we go in ministry, again, here's another irony. I know for me, I lived most of my life, or half of my life as a, a heathen, unbeliever. And I thought it was free. I bought my car, I dated the girl I wanted, I worked three jobs and bought my first house. I thought life was great, I was free. But I was really in bondage to my own sins. When I became a believer, the shackles really were released from me. And I can just tell you from a personal testimony, and I was truly free. I was free to be the person that God always designed me to be. Now. When I got into ministry, it's kind of funny where I just said to the Lord, in the Old Testament, a servant would want to stay in servitude in a family after he did his, his time serving, and he was free, and a sign that he wanted to, in the Old Testament, stay with that family and continue to serve them for the rest of his life, almost enslave himself, was a, they put an all through his ear. And there was a, a mark that identified him as somebody who had voluntarily submitted himself to be in bondage or in servitude to that family. So when we get higher into ministry and God calls us into things, it's pretty amazing. We say to God, put the chains back on me, but I want them to be attached to you. Everywhere you go, I want to go. I want there to be a short leash between you and me. So we look at freedom versus bondage very interestingly, but it's only the Bible that gives us clarity. A lot of ironies here. Quick, quick uh, fulfilled scripture, verses 27 and 28. Uh, it says... 
Scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That goes all the way back to Isaiah 53, 12, prophesied centuries prior. Verse 29, those that blasphemed him, they taunted him. That goes back to Psalm 22, 7 through 8, in amazing detail. And in verse 31 and 32, they say to him, he saved others, him he cannot save, come off the cross. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't succumb to that temptation? Where would we be if two hours into it he just said, I just, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just not doing it. You know, he thought about another way in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed to the Father, and he says, if there's any other way, and uh, he just said, but not my will, but thy will be done for you and me. Yeah. Verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, look, he is calling for Elijah, meaning Elijah the prophet. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The third part that I want to cover this morning is the sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross and what they symbolize. I look at it this way. The first three were altruistic for mankind, uh, benevolent. And the second four were mission-oriented, the mission of his substitutionary death on the cross. A, in Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, Father, they were insulting him, they were twisting his words, stuff that he said on the earth, and, and Jesus said to the Father, don't, you know, don't hold that sin against them. It's just done completely out of spiritual ignorance. And as believers, sometimes we get annoyed when we're taunted by those that don't believe. We get irritated. But don't get too irritated because they don't know. They're speaking out of spiritual ignorance. I said some ridiculous things before I was saved. You know, you parrot stuff you hear. Oh, the Bible was written by... You know, you just say dumb things because you don't know any better until you actually become saved, have a new nature, a new spirit, and God teaches you. The Holy Spirit teaches us. And how can we not forgive them when we were ignorant and we were forgiven? So the first point is forgiveness. Pray for our enemies, Sermon on the Mount, especially unbelievers, especially. B, Luke 23, 42 through 43, he says to one of those that he's crucified next to, assuredly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise because the man says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has a change of heart. He, you can say he repents and turns towards the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. So the second thing, uh, based on what he says, is salvation is by belief in Christ alone. He didn't say, well, you've got to get off the cross and be baptized first. He didn't say, well, let me see if you can speak in tongues first. Well, let me get a priest over here to give you last rites. There's a whole lot of things that, you know, that people teach in religion that have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is by belief in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. Anything that's added, Revelation says, don't add anything because all those plagues will be added to you. Right out of the book of Revelation. Actually, it says it three times in the scripture, Old and New Testament. C, John 19 Jesus is, we can say that his mother was there based on what we read and it does appear the disciple John was there and he says to his mother and then to John, he says, woman, behold your son 
and then to him, behold your mother. So the third point is, out of the sayings on the cross, is that God puts us in spiritual families. Now they may be your, it's, you know what's a, a beautiful thing is when your family is saved too. That's great, but that doesn't always happen. So the families he puts you in may be spiritual families, but they may not necessarily be biological families. But it's a double blessing if they're both. Okay? Um, my wife and I have so many children have been added to us over the years. <laughs> spiritual children, spiritual parents, spiritual brothers and sisters. It's pretty amazing. D, Mark 15, verse 34, we just covered it. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 22.1. This is an interesting, very interesting, is that, you know, listen, I could do the best I can because people ask me these questions. Well, how do you explain that? How, if he's God, why is he saying, my God, my God? Just think about the fact, and I try to look at things from different perspectives. God loved us so much, John 3.16, he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, anybody here would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved us so much that he did something where it's almost as if he divided himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Son came, took the form of a man, Father was still at the helm, and, uh, and, and that's what he had to do to die for our sins. It had to be God. It couldn't be a human dying for us because a human doesn't have that much power. It would actually accomplish nothing except for suicide. So... This is a portion of eternity, and I'm going to say the first and last time. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is the first and last time in all of eternity that God separated himself. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he went back to be where he belongs in heaven, his throne, right? So the son felt it, and I believe the, the father felt too, that separation. So the fourth point I want to uh, speak about or based on the sayings of the cross, is on the cross, is sacrifice. Salvation literally cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. And there is an element, and there is an understanding, again, remember Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, not always get stuff, not always me first. He said, deny yourself. I don't care what they tell you on Christian TV. I'm telling you what the Bible says. There needs to be an element of sacrifice in our lives. I can tell you, there is nothing uglier than a completely self-centered Christian. There's nothing uglier than a Christian who goes into this, who, and you even question where their motives are and if they really had a conversion experience, that want to get everything they can from the world and everything they can get from God. They want to just aggrandize themselves. They want to be selfish. It's them first. And then when I die, well, I'm going to heaven. Oh, that's the part I get from God. That's not what the scripture says. There needs to be an element of sacrifice when we come to the cross. E, John 19, Jesus said, I thirst. Psalm 22, 15, Psalm, or Psalm 69, 3, all speak about the prophecies of the dryness specifically in his mouth. Oh, well, you know, the Bible says, yeah, right, the Bible says, Go back a thousand years, a thousand BC, and the Bible says a lot of things that are descriptive of Jesus Christ, including the dryness in his mouth from the crucifixion, when the, the writers of Psalm and Isaiah 53 didn't even know what crucifixion was. But God, through the Holy Spirit, gave them these prophecies that eventually would come to fulfillment. 
It's possible that Jesus needed some moisture in his mouth because he was completely dry from the blood loss and the sweat and the beatings, that he's completely being dehydrated, hypovolemic shock, loss of blood, that there's just nothing in there. Complete dry mouth. And he needed something to you know, parch his, his mouth so he can say the last two things. And what it shows me about Jesus is his selflessness. He thought about himself last. He's on the cross and he thinks about himself last. He thought of us first. Others centered. So he says this, the last two utterances. Uh, John 19.30, he says, it is finished. Right? It's completed. I paid the penalty for the sins of mankind. And two, Luke 23, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, these are some scriptures, if you're interested, I'll throw them out to you, um, that were fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, and 10 through 11. Leviticus 17, 11. Romans 6, 10. 1 Peter 3, 18. And Hebrews 9.28, which tells us that Jesus died once. So the last point where I, I group the two sayings, last two sayings together, is that we cannot add to the Lord's sacrifice for our sins. He did it all. When it comes to salvation, he did all the heavy lifting. Again, in religion, there are a lot of unbiblical things and a lot of different religions. You know, I, I grew up in religion, and then I dabbled in other religions, but I was really looking for the truth. And finally, if you're looking for the truth, the Lord will help you to find the truth. But, you know, even we're going to partake of communion today, and some, not just one denomination that you might be familiar with, there's several of them, that when they take the bread and the cup, they actually do this thing, and they make it so you believe that Jesus actually, it's called transubstantiation. They take Jesus off of, out, of the right, out of heaven, out of the right hand of the Father, put him back in the bread, and put his blood in the drink, and you take, and then he goes back to be with heaven. I mean, he, he'd be doing this 24-7, uh, all day long, through different churches across the face of the earth. There's no such thing as transubstantiation. It is finished. I did it. No priest or pastor or rabbi has the power to bring Jesus back from where he is in heaven and put him in it's just not scriptural. So Jesus' sacrifice, nothing can be added to it. It is finished. Hebrews tells us that he did it once, and that's it. When we take the Gospels together, we find that Jesus gave up his spirit. What does that tell us? That he didn't die from his injuries. All that stuff that happened to him, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I'm now going to shed the body, leave it on the cross. It's pretty wild stuff if you think about it. It's very deep. And his spirit, his deity, goes up to be with the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Once he died for our sins, there was really no reason to languish on the cross anymore. For what purpose? The Roman soldiers marveled that he was dead so soon because he gave up his spirit. Now this is an amazing thing is that Jesus, the Bible tells us, especially all over Hebrews, that he was the high priest. But we're also told that he's the Lamb of God. So which is it? It's both. Is Jesus the conquering the Messiah, or is he the suffering servant? It's both. See, here's the problem. When we, we don't open our minds and we try to put God in a box and say it has to be this, who the heck are we to tell God what he has to do so that we could understand it? 
That's the problem sometimes in religion and theology. You get a bunch of eggheads getting together who call themselves Christians and they start throwing this stuff around. And God's probably like, how about just worshiping me? How about stop arguing and pray to me? You know what I'm saying? How about let's have a discussion? Jesus was the high priest, which means the high priest in the Old Testament, and this is cool because we just covered this on Wednesday in 1 Kings 6 with the temple and the laver and the, the um, you know, the... Um, the altar, it's for the burnt offerings, and then the blood that was brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled before the mercy seat. This was all a picture or a prefigurement or a type or any one of those big words of a future Jesus Christ dying for our sins. So the priest was the one who officiated this. He took the blood, the high priest, once a year. He went into the Holy Holies. He sprinkled it before the mercy seat. He was the officiator. So Jesus was the high priest. Where's the sacrifice? Okay, Jesus is also the sacrifice. He is, John the Baptist, when he saw the Lord for the first time, said, the Lamb of God who take, takes away the sins of the world, prophesying that. So Jesus not only is the high priest who officiates it, but he's also the Lamb. He's also the sacrifice who gave himself and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. Pretty amazing, isn't it? When we think about God, let's just talk about what the Bible says. Let's try to read the scripture and understand it. Now, again, this wasn't a suicide mission. He didn't say, I love you so much, I'm going to kill myself on the cross. He did something on the cross that we couldn't see with our eyes. But it's the shedding of the blood, which is the remission for our sins. Verse 38, last few verses. Then the veil. Now, this is the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy of place where the ark of God is and where the blood was sprinkled. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which is significant. Now when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this, that he saw Jesus cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God, emphatically. There were also women looking on from afar, among them who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women were brave ladies. Uh, people say, oh, you know, there's plenty of women in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, awesome ladies. These ladies, when his disciples, his the men disciples, a lot of them took off, the women followed him to the very end. Very brave. Didn't know what could that mean for me. You know, it was a male-dominated society, but they still followed the Lord all the way to the cross, and they were loyal to him. That's pretty great. So the fourth and last part, signs contemporaneous following and confirming his substitutionary death. Those are all big words for meaning that stuff happened at the time of the cross, and I'm going to go into that right now. So A, verse 33, the darkness. This darkness was for three hours. Imagine in the middle of the day, all of a sudden, you, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's significant. Darkness was the ninth judgment plague of Egypt. Right? I'll let you in on a little secret. In law enforcement, when a brother or sister is slain, they wear black cloth covering their badge as a sign of mourning and a sign of respect for the dead. Humans were too dumb to realize what they were doing to God in the flesh. But what God did, he blacked out creation for three hours. Complete darkness. Right? This is my son. He died on the cross, in essence. So this was number one, this was a judgment for sin. Another judgment for sin was in Matthew 27, the earthquake. And we're going to see uh, as we go through, well, I went through Revelation and it talked about earthquakes 
and uh, you know, God's judgment on the unbelieving world. Here's an amazing article from, it's the Institute of, for Creation Research. Steve Austin, not the bionic man, <laughs> Steve Austin, PhD, and he says, it's a long article, you can, I'll copy it for you if you want. Recently, geologists have investigated the 4,000-year chronology of earthquake disturbances within the uppermost 19 feet of laminated sediment of the Dead Sea. They, they look at this sediment, they look at the disturbances in the sediment, and they can go back in time and see where the earthquake is. Pretty fascinating science, ge ge you know, geologists and such. He says basically that, um, I'll just read a little bit. In this sediment outcrop is a distinctive one-foot-thick mixed layer of sediment that is tied strongly to the Qumran earthquakes onshore ground ruptures of 31 BC. Now, 13 inches above the 31 BC event bed is another distinctive mixed layer less than one inch thick. The sedimentation rate puts this second earthquake about 65 years after the 31 BC earthquake. It seems that the crucifixion earthquake of 33 AD was a magnitude of 5.5 on the Richter scale, leaving direct physical evidence in a thin layer of disturbed sediment from the Dead Sea. I have a whole bunch of these articles in my office. Can God just do a miracle? Sure. But then there's times that he leaves evidence. You know, try me, God says. Test me. See if I'm really here. I'll show myself to you. So we're just, science is now just catching up with a lot of the events that happened at the first century. C, in Matthew 27, there were resurrections. Matthew's gospel tells us that people came out of their graves and they appeared to people in the holy city. This was the first fruits of the prophesied resurrection. The Bible talks about resurrection all the way back in the Old Testament. Actually, all the way back in Genesis, if you're paying attention. This was symbolic of Christ's destruction of death. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? Number one, when you're in Christ, Jesus says, you pass from death into life. You die, but you don't die. Your physical body falls to the ground, but you continue, and you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. A good thing. The Bible talks about a future dispensation where there will no, be no, no more death, just like in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. So bodily, spiritually, doesn't it? Death, where's your sting? Come on, death, grim reaper, sickle. Can't have that cartoon anymore, can we? Yeah, because death has been destroyed. Not funny anymore. It's not... It's not witty. D, verse 38, the temple, uh, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Significant, it started from God. It was a huge temple. Um, when we covered this in 1 Kings 6, the ceiling, the temple was, um, I believe it was 45 feet high. It was a huge ceiling. And they had this huge thick curtain that had to separate what the priests did in the holy place from the holy of holies. So what God did was, now what that was significant was in the Holy of Holies, that was the once a year place where the priest would come and sprinkle the blood of sacrifice um, for atonement for the sins of Israel, which was, a, again, a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. So by God tearing that veil, what he was saying was, you can come into my presence all the time. That's what that means. And this was symbolic of the substitutionary death, bringing mankind back into personal fellowship with God which we can have today. Sweet. You don't get a sweeter deal than that. 
E, verse 39, the centurion was convinced this was symbolic of Christ's substitutionary death bringing the Gentiles into the fold. Remember Peter's Cornelius in the book of Acts. Bring the Gentiles into the fold. Tradition tells us that this is tradition, so I'm going to go on a limb here. I can't, I've seen this in one or two sources. Tradition tells us that the centurion who is at the cross watching everything that happened was also the guy who was guarding Pilate when Jesus came before him. And he writes in his annals. It's actually a pretty good size um, document, a historical document. And he basically says, I've seen people go at Pilate's feet, cry, scream, beg, hold on to his ankles. He goes, Jesus comes before him like he was in complete control. And what's with this guy? You know? And then he sees him go up to the cross and he's talking to the Father and he's forgiven people. So the centurion gets saved. Right? One of the centurions gets saved. And he actually dies a martyr's death. Again, that's tradition, but it's definitely plausible from what we read in the Scripture. John's Gospel tells us that the soldiers went by the crucifixion victims to finally break their legs. Those that just lingered and lingered and lingered. I guess they didn't want to pay them overtime, so they went over there with these big sledgehammers and they would break their legs so that they couldn't hoist themselves up. It was horrible. They couldn't hoist themselves up anymore and they would drop down and they would suffocate. So then they would just die. When they came to Jesus, they marveled that he was dead so soon. Now let me just, well, fulfillment of Psalm 3420, where it said not one of his bones would be broken. Let me just give you a little history, and then we're going to close. But um, true history is that the Romans would, before the crucifixion, they would take their, maybe some people would be let go, they would take their whips, and you've heard the descriptions, they had leather thongs and sharp objects in them, and they would whip, they would tie their prisoners' hands to a post, and the back would be spread out, and they would just whip them. And if, what they try to do is get a confession out of you, and actually it worked, except for some they just would say anything just to stop the beatings. But what they would do is they'd whip hard, and then if you started confessing any crimes you committed that the Roman government didn't know about, they would just lay the whip over you and bring it back gently, and that was a whip, and you just would have relief. So it, it, it encouraged people to just confess any crimes that they had committed. Jesus had no crime to commit. So what do you think the soldiers did? They whipped harder and harder and harder, and they gave it to the next stocky guy and had him whip Jesus until his muscles were torn to pieces, his skin, his fat, blood was everywhere, and the, and the, the, the whip, when he came down, probably laid down on, his, on the back of his ribcage. He had nothing to confess. They probably thought, here's this guy, we'll teach him a lesson, you don't have anything to say, we'll, we'll get it out of you. Nothing to say. So, is it a wonder? Was Jesus weak? Of course not. Why couldn't he carry his cross? Because he had no blood left in him. He barely could make it up that hill. And they, they use Simon. You know, one thing I, I can do, I don't have that many gifts, but one gift I have is to take my background of investigations and do an investigation. I take it all together, I put it in, I put all the pieces together, the Gospels, and it paints a really awesome picture. It takes a long time to do. But it makes sense. Why is this detail in here? Why is that detail in Matthew? Why is that in John? Because God's painting a picture for us, and it's beautiful artwork. I want to give homework. <laughs> like, I'm not, like I'm going to be able to check it. <laughs> so, <laughs> While this is still fresh in your mind, I'd like you to go home at some point today, read Isaiah 53, and read Psalm 22. 
And if you're not familiar with those books and you're not even familiar with Christianity, remember these books were, were written 700 years and 1,000 years B.C. respectively. Different cultures, different languages, a lot changed in that time. But when you read it, it's going to be like they were there at the crucifixion, but it was written, the Jewish uh, Old Testament was codified long before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It'll blow your mind. The crucifixion victims carried their cross after they were found guilty. But the truth is, Jesus was not guilty. However, he stood in your place and mine because we are guilty. Because all it takes is one sin to separate us from God. Because he's perfect. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. Why? Because God is a God of justice. And as much as we watch TV and see the person who hurts a child get away on a technicality, we get angry. Because inside of us is a sense of justice. However, when it happens with us, we're not so big on justice. We want mercy. But God looks at everything from an objective point of view. We've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. Something needs to be done. He can't just brush off the sins and, and sweep them under the carpet. It doesn't work like that. Something must be done for the sins that we've committed. We can't ruin his heaven like we've ruined this world. We can't, flesh cannot inhabit the kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us. Only spirit can. So unless we're born again of the spirit, that's when we, that's when we inhabit for eternity. Justice needs to be satisfied. I pray and hope that this understanding of what Jesus went through for us, and I'm going to say this, that I don't think to him the pain, which must have been horrible. You know the word excruciating pain? You know what excruciating, our vernacular, comes from? It means from the cross. So here we are in 2015. We, used it, we went for a surgery. Oh, it's excruciating. We just admitted. You know, what, we got that from the cross. That's what that means. I believe it wasn't the pain that was the worst part. I believe that the holy, pure Son of God bearing all of our sins, what does that feel like? Even as a sinner, I wouldn't want to do that. What did it feel like for God to bear that, our sins? He knew what it felt like. That was the worst part, I believe, and the separation from the Father for that moment of time. So I just pray that our understanding of what he did will give us a greater appreciation for him. I pray that it would re-energize us to grow, draw closer to him. I pray that if you don't know the Lord, that you would be desiring, what do I have to do? I, I want to follow him. I didn't know that he loved me so much. I pray that we would be obedient to his word, that we would love his word, that we would want to talk to him in prayer, that we would want to share the good news of salvation and also take discipleship seriously and whatever else the Lord puts on your heart. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.